Awesome, and good morning, everyone. Welcome to worship at Grace Latham. We're glad you're here. Hey, let me ask you a question as we get started. Do you have religion, or do you have a relationship with the living God? There is a big, big difference between the two, and we're going to talk about that today. Now, here's how it works. Religious people usually are trying to keep all the right rules at all the right times in all the right ways. They're trying to touch all the bases, so in hopes that they will be acceptable to God and earn eternal life. But what religious people find pretty quickly is that, wow, it is a crushing burden to bear. To do your duty faithfully, to try to do the right things, to try to get on this treadmill of performance and be good enough to be acceptable to God, to earn eternal life, it is a crushing burden. And quite honestly, there's not much joy in it. It kind of strips away any deep, genuine joy because you just feel like you're doing all these things you got to do if you're ever going to make it. Well, the man we're looking at today, Nicodemus, was a very religious man. In fact, he was a part of the Pharisee sect. They were the best of the best of the best within Judaism. They were the best keepers of the law you have ever seen. But even though Nicodemus was a fine Pharisee, he still hadn't found what he was looking for. There was something empty in his soul. But not only was Nicodemus a Pharisee, he was also a member of the Jewish ruling council known as the Sanhedrin. These were 70 of the top leaders of Israel. And you might think of them as a cross between our U.S. Supreme Court and our U.S. Senate. They had literally that kind of power. So think about it. He's highly respected, went to all the right schools, got all the best connections, knows the right people. His network is unbelievable, but he still feels empty in his heart and soul. And then into the picture strolls this itinerant street preacher named Jesus. <laughs> he, he's gone to none of the right schools. He doesn't have any of the credentials or qualifications that the in crowd would be looking for. He has no official position. And yet Nicodemus recognizes in him something that he's looking for. It seems to be an authentic relationship with God that is unmistakable. And so it piques his curiosity. I want us to think now for a few moments about his curiosity. Nicodemus was curious, but he was also, I think, a bit embarrassed to identify or be seen with Jesus even. I think that's why he came at night. I start reading here in John chapter 3. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one 
could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus, we've had our eyes on you. We've been observing kind of how you operate, your MO. And one thing I and a few of my buddies have concluded, you're different. There's something about you that you just could not be doing if God were not with you. Now, he references miraculous signs. It's interesting, though. If you're only reading John's gospel up to this point, how many miraculous signs have you seen specifically? One. John's only highlighted one. It's the turning of water into wine. Chapter 2. But there is a mysterious little verse, provocative, at the end of John chapter 2, verse 23, which says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs, plural, he was doing and believed in his name. So obviously Jesus had done more than one, and the question on Nicodemus' mind was, look, how can a man, and indeed that's what Jesus was, he was a man, the God-man, but he was indeed a man, how could he be so connected to the power of God that the power that throws, flows through his life has its source not in man but in God? By the way, later, when the apostle Peter spoke on the day of Pentecost to the crowd that was assembled there, in Jerusalem, he said this in his message, Acts 2, men of Israel, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by what? What did he do? Miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. So Nicodemus and apparently some of his cronies, because he speaks in the first person plural, we, we, he's speaking for others as well apparently, we believe there's something different going on here and that it is from God. His curiosity is high. But his curiosity leads Nicodemus to his conundrum. That's probably not a word you use every day. It simply means a confusing and difficult problem or question. And life tends to have a lot of those if your life is anything like mine. And Nicodemus is faced with one of those now. Jesus poses it, really, in verse 3. His, in reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, back in 1976, Jimmy Carter was running for the presidency of the United States of America against Gerald Ford, and the news was making a big deal out of Carter's faith, this peanut farmer from Georgia, because they realized that his faith was robust, and it kind of drove his values, and it meant a lot to him. And so Jimmy Carter courageously declared to the press... I am a born-again Christian, and boy, did that cause a stir. Because even though that phrase, born-again, was a common one in evangelical circles, it was not a phrase that was used in society at large very much. 
And so everybody was intrigued. Wow, what does that mean? He's not just a Christian. He's a born-again Christian. What is that all about? What does that mean? Now, since that time, interestingly enough, that term has actually become kind of mainstream. But it's used in a variety of different ways in our culture. Here's a pro tennis player, and she's in a slump. Boy, she is just not living up to her potential, and everybody's wondering, is her career over? And then suddenly, she rises like a phoenix from the ashes, comes back and starts winning tournaments again, and the headline in the news says, she's a born-again tennis player. It's used that way. Or here's a businessman who goes bankrupt, and everybody thought he was the kind of guy who would never lose, but now he's down and out, but he starts a new business, and whoa, it's flying high. And people talk about him as being born again. Or here's a relationship of romance, and it grows rather cold and stale, but suddenly the couple gets back together. Romance is reborn and reignited. And people say, well, their relationship has been born again. But when Jesus was talking here, he meant something much more profound than how we usually use the term. He was pointing Nicodemus away from religion to a vital, saving relationship with God. It's interesting to me. I hope you know that Jesus had his most intense battles with religious people. Did you know that? He got along great with people who were kind of down and outers, up and outers, you know, people whose lives had gone sideways. But it was with the religious in crowd that Jesus had his most intense struggles. And in Matthew 23, he said to them on one occasion, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In other words, Nicodemus, I'm saying to you, look, I know that on the outside, people would look at you men and they'd say, you got it all together. They would die to have your life, buddy. But you know and I know that the reason you came knocking on my door is because you know in the deep secret recesses of your heart, something is missing. Something is missing in your soul that your religion has not been able to provide. And I can't help but wonder today, how many of you listening online, how many of you here in the sanctuary might be in that same situation? Perhaps you're religious. Perhaps you've been a member or a tender of this church. Maybe you've been a part of another church for a long, long time. Perhaps you consider yourself a very faithful person of faith. You're religious. But maybe deep in your heart, you know, when you put your head on the pillow at night, something is wrong. Something's not there. Jesus is not talking here about turning over a new leaf or getting a fresh start. He's talking here about a radical, deep transformation that the Bible calls being born again. 
I want you to turn your attention to the screens now. Larry and Marianne DeNovo are a wonderful members of our church family, very involved. God's using them in a great way. And I want you to listen as Larry here shares how God brought him to his turning point. Let's listen together. Well, prior to me coming to know the Lord, uh, my background was I'm a, I was a Roman Catholic. As I grew up, went to, especially in my college years, I strayed away from Catholicism. and really became a pagan uh, to my shame. I got a degree in civil engineering. That was my quest at the time. When I graduated from school, um, my father happened to have a business that my brother took over and he needed my help. So rather than pursuing a civil engineering practice, I helped my brother out in business. And while I was uh, in business with my brother, we had several people we employed. And there was one particular gentleman that worked for me that to be truthful with you, I really had no respect for, uh, for a number of reasons. He was rather irresponsible, not just as an employee, but also kind of as a family man. But I began to see something happen to him. I saw a change in his lifestyle and his behavior. Um, and what happened was he came to Christ. And, you know, I saw a very disenchanted guy that was looking for happiness and they're all the wrong places before. But when he got saved, there was, a, there was a happiness that he had that was very, very distinct to me. And he says, I just want to ask you a question. I said, he said, if you were to die today, do you know if you'd go to heaven? And he stumped me. And I really didn't know the answer to that question. On Wednesday nights, they would have a prayer meeting and, and he'd ask the church, the prayer group to pray for me. And over the course of several weeks, um, God began to work on my heart as he began to change and share the gospel with me. And he invited me to church. And I felt as an obligation to actually go to his church because I saw a marked difference in his job performance and the way he conducted himself. Rather than coming in late to work, he came in early, etc. But I went to that church. We met in, in the, the uh, basement of a key bank. It was just about 35, 40 people, very, very small church. But the something that hit me when I heard him speak is that not, not only did he know what he believed, but he knew why he believed what he believed. And so talking to myself, I was saying, do you know what you believe? And I had no answer for that. I really didn't know what my beliefs were in terms of God and everything. The change that God did in the terms of the life of this fellow that worked for me and the prayers that people prayed, and the love that I experienced going to that little church, uh, the Holy Spirit began to work on my heart. And I read through the gospel track, and at the end, um, you know, I was encouraged to, to, uh, uh, to make a choice, to make a decision. Did I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins? He was buried and rose again on the third day. Would I, and it encouraged me to pray and accept Christ as my savior. And so there, it was actually in my own bedroom, um, I prayed that prayer. And uh, when I was done praying, all I can tell you is when I was done, I was sincere about it, and I recognized I was under new management in my life. And so that was a real turning point in, in terms of me coming to know the Lord Jesus as my personal Savior. Amen.
Great story. Love these turning point stories. Love to hear how God worked in people's lives and drew them to, to Christ as their Savior and Lord. Well, Nicodemus is a bit confused in this conversation, and he asks here in verse 4, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Now, I don't think Nicodemus is being cynical or sarcastic here. I think he's actually just sincere. He's going, look, Jesus, you, you, you can't be talking about something merely physical here because, frankly, that would be impossible. And then Jesus explains, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, there's been all kinds of theorizing about exactly what that means. What does it mean to be born of water? What does it mean to be born of the Spirit? I think sometimes we, we can actually look for deeper meanings when they lie maybe right on the surface. It's my personal belief that your physical birth takes place when you are born of water. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Your parents gave you physical birth. At first, there are many things when you're born you don't know. But you soon begin to realize, wow, I can hear. I can see. A little baby soon discovers his or her hands and they discover they can move their fingers and they can grasp something with those hands and later they can throw a ball with those hands. There's all kinds of things they begin to experience and begin to unfold because the flesh gives birth to flesh. But Jesus also said the spirit gives birth to spirit. And trust me when I tell you that when you are born of the spirit, Likewise, there are many things you don't understand at first, but you soon begin to realize, I can hear, I can see, I can understand many things now that made no sense whatsoever before. And you begin to understand a whole new realm of experience that you never knew existed because you now have this spiritual life in you, new appetites, new desires, new resources, new power, because God has come to live in you and work from the inside out. Some of you have had this experience in watching friends of yours. You've had a family member, a coworker, friend, classmate, and you don't get it. What happened to them? They got all weird on you, right? They suddenly started changing. Their values began to change. And you wonder in your mind, why do they want to go to church now? Church is the last place you would have found them before. And you wonder, wow, they love that small group. They talk about it all the time and how wonderful the people are there and how loved and accepted they feel in that small group. And wow, they begin to read the Bible. And there's certain things they used to do and they go, you know, I'm not that interested in that anymore. And their whole life is changing. And you wonder, what's going on? Can I suggest to you, maybe they've been born again. 
That may be exactly what happened. They've been born again, and now God's Spirit is working on them from the inside out. By the way, one of the new appetites God put in me when I was born again at the age of 13 is he gave me a whole new passion and hunger for the word of God. Boy, I didn't have that before. It was literally, I kid you not, like a switch had just been flipped on. Before, I honestly thought the Bible was the most boring book on the planet. I couldn't stand it. Couldn't stand hearing it preached. I hated to go to church. It was just dull and boring to me. Now, I'd read it a little bit just to please my teachers in Sunday school. I even memorized a handful of verses to get a little gold star as a reward, put on my little pamphlet, the little book they gave us in Sunday school when I was seven, eight, nine, ten years old. But I didn't like the Bible. And suddenly, when I was born again, you couldn't keep me out of the Bible. I wanted to devour it. Now, don't get me wrong. This, God's work doesn't look exactly the same in everyone. God's not in the business of creating clones in his church. We maintain a distinctiveness. And I gotta be honest with you. When I'm reading the genealogies in the book of 1 Chronicles, I'm not glowing with joy. Yeah. But trust me when I tell you, I love the Bible now. I'm passionate about learning what God has revealed to us. God did that. All of this is the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit. And some of you know what this experience is like. When you came to Christ and were born again, suddenly there were things you used to do and you go, oh, you know, God is prompting me. I ought not do that anymore. It might have been aspects of your relationships or your sexuality or how you talked or how critical you were or how mean-spirited you were or various attitudes that you had. It might even have to do with the way you treated your body, words that came out of your mouth, and your values began to change. Again, all the marvelous work of the Holy Spirit. He's the one who does the changing. He's the one who gives the new appetites and desires and ambitions. I love verse eight. It says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. I want to say to you prophetically today, the Spirit of God is blowing in your life. You're not here by accident. Many of you online, you're not listening by accident. This is a divine appointment for you. God's wind has been blowing in your life, and he's drawing you to himself. And just like Nicodemus, listen, whenever the Spirit of God is drawing, something wonderful is about to happen if you'll only recognize it and by faith respond to it. And you say, well, how, pastor? How does that work? Well, that's exactly what Nicodemus was asking in verse 9. How can this be? You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do, not, do you not understand these things? And then Jesus graciously begins to open up a window of insight to Nicodemus straight out of the Old Testament. I'm skipping down to verse 14, just as Moses 
lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Now remember, Nicodemus is an expert in the Old Testament law. As a Pharisee, he had made it one of his key values in life to be intimately familiar with all that God had revealed in his Old Testament. And so he knew well this story from Numbers 21, how the people of God, we call the Israelites, had come out of Egyptian bondage. God had guided them miraculously with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they had come now to this area. There's more to the story than this, more details, but just to make it quick, they'd come to this area where suddenly all these venomous snakes were wreaking havoc. And the members of this Israelite camp were being bitten by these snakes. It was horrible. And they were infected now with this poison, and many were beginning to die. And God told Moses to do something. This is very significant now. God told Moses, oh, this is so weird, to fashion, to make a, a serpent, a snake. And so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole so it could be seen by everybody. And he put it smack dab in the middle of the camp of the Israelites. And God said to Moses, everyone who looks upon that serpent, if they've been infected with this venom, been bitten by these snakes, they will be healed. And Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, I want you to think about that for a while. Now you say, well, that's very strange. That's illogical. That's exactly what a lot of the people thought then. In fact, there were people in the Israelite camp who said, that is silly. I can't understand how looking upon this bronze serpent lifted up could in any way take this venom out of my veins. I'm not going to look. And the people who copped that attitude perished. There were others in the camp who said, you know what, I agree. It does seem illogical. I can't figure it out. But I frankly don't have any other alternative. And so even though I don't understand it all, I am going to look by faith upon this serpent. And those who did were healed. And Jesus said, Moses, or rather Nicodemus, there's coming a day, it won't be tomorrow or the next day, but there's coming a day when the Son of Man, just like Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up, and everyone who by faith looks to the cross will be healed of something far worse than a snake bite, far worse than any coronavirus, far worse than any pandemic disease, it's the disease of sin that has infected the human race. Anyone who looks on that cross and my finished work on that cross is going to be forgiven and saved and that curse of sin will be reversed in their lives. They will be born again. Wow. Wow. That's the gospel. So his curiosity led him to a conundrum. 
And his conundrum led him finally to his challenge. His challenge. What comes next here is perhaps the best known passage in the whole Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Now listen, this must have been so hard for a religious man like Nicodemus to understand. Jesus was saying, look, Nicodemus, you are not, I repeat, you are not okay relying merely on your religious pedigree. Because God's got a gift he wants to give you. You currently, because of what you're trusting in, which is really yourself and your own performance, you currently are in the state of perishing. By the way, every human on the planet is in one of two states. Perishing is a process. They're either in the process of perishing or in the process of living eternal life. It's not something you receive just one day when you die. Eternal life is something you're living right now if you've been born again. So everyone listening to me, everyone on the planet is either in the process of perishing or in the process of living this life directly from God. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, God so loved the world. That includes you, Nick, that he sent his one and only son and whoever looks to the cross where I am lifted up, will not perish. Think of how hard that is to accept. You're talking about a guy here who's the best of the best. And the finest religious people are always the last to want to accept that eternal life is a gift. That's why I started by asking you that question. Do you have religion? Or do you have a relationship with the living God? Big difference between the two. By the way, it wasn't just Nicodemus who found that difficult to embrace. I have found that in a religious culture like so many in the capital district, they're very religious in their background, I have found this is a message that's difficult for a lot of people to embrace. The Apostle Paul certainly found it hard. (laughs) It blew his mind. Remember, he too was a Pharisee, just like Nicodemus. He too was the best of the West. He too was advancing in Judaism far beyond his colleagues. He was a rock star when it came to being a religious man. But listen to what he later wrote to the Philippians when he shared his own turning point story. He put it like this. He said, if anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, (laughs) I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, are you kidding me? Faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss, 
compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. I love that word, Greek word, skuvala. It's a four-letter word. Rubbish kind of cleans it up a little bit. Old King James calls it dung. You know what it is. Rubbish is a nice way to put it. I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. There's the dividing line, folks. Are you trusting in your religion and your performance to save you? Or are you considering all of that scuvala and trusting in the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus Christ? That's the dividing line of all humanity right there. Oh, oh, I wish, I wish this story ended with a little editorial note by John. And at that moment, a light shined from heaven, and Nicodemus fell to his knees and realized he needed to be born again. He prayed the sinner's prayer and was gloriously born again on the spot. Hallelujah. And the angelic host sang. It doesn't read that way, does it? In fact, John leaves us hanging here. He doesn't even tell us what happened. And Nicodemus to make matters worse, falls out of the picture for the rest of the gospel until the very end. But here's what I believe. I believe he did get it, and I believe he was gloriously born again at some point after this because when Jesus was crucified, there were two men who publicly took Jesus' body down from the cross and helped prepare him for burial along with two women. And the two men were Joseph of Arimathea, who actually provided the tomb, and Nicodemus, who provided spices, myrrh, aloe, etc., for the preparation of Jesus' body. And the man who had formerly been embarrassed, so he came to Jesus at night, was now a convinced believer who is willing publicly to identify with Jesus. And I'd like to believe this. I don't know how it happened. This is not in the Bible, everybody. This is my imagination. I'd like to believe that as Nicodemus watched Jesus, listen, being lifted up on the cross, it all clicked. It all clicked. He went back to this moment. He thought, ah, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man, that's Jesus, must be lifted up. Wow, he's dying there for me so that my sins can be forgiven. And I'd like to believe that at that moment, it all made sense. And Nicodemus, whenever it happened, was indeed born again. Now, I believe the wind of God is blowing here today. And I believe he is showing some of you your need for Jesus Christ. And we're going to take time to pray a prayer together. And if you realize that Religion is not your way to be saved. If you realize today that it's only through faith in the Son of God who was lifted up on the cross and died there for my sins and yours and was raised again to life and now invites us to place our faith in him, if that's what you believe, I'm gonna invite you to pray a prayer with me. We're gonna do a little different. 
in just a moment, I'm gonna invite you to pray this prayer out loud right where you are. Now, some of you have been Christ followers for 40 years, wonderful. You know what? I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer today out loud, phrase by phrase after me. Others of you say, well, pastor, I was born again three months ago, but I'm confident of my salvation. Wonderful. I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer out loud with me today, if you would. And then there are many of you listening online and here in the sanctuary. You're honestly not certain of your relationship with Christ, but the wind of God is blowing. You're not here by accident. This is your divine moment with God. This is your moment to be born again. I'm gonna ask you to pray this prayer out loud as well. Are you ready? All across the sanctuary, those listening online, would you bow your heads, please? Let's pray this prayer Pray it out loud, please. Just be bold, phrase by phrase. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you died and rose again, that I might come alive spiritually. You died in my place to deal with my sin. I confess my sin to you. Thank you for the forgiveness that flows from the cross. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me. And send your Holy Spirit to live within me that I might be born again. 